This is an ABC podcast. Ta-la-fa-lava lover and warm Pacific greetings. You're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Talia Olatia. Coming up on the program, as PNG ensures a bilateral security deal with Australia doesn't encroach on its sovereignty, a political analyst says there's nothing wrong with taking your time. It's better to just be careful, be slow, be meticulous, be methodical, and, and, and come up with an outcome that is on both sides, you know, a good outcome. Tonga is set to become the first Pacific country to experiment with wave technology, which it hopes will help combat high electricity prices in the country. There is a huge impact on the cost of living here in Tonga. We have witnessed this in, since the hikes in the electricity bills last year. And it's World Ocean Day, so you'll hear all about the efforts being made to ensure the safe crossing of Pacific waters. All that and more this morning on Pacific Beat. The furor surrounding comments made by PNG's former foreign minister when he called critics of his daughter primitive animals has blown up again, this time in the country's parliament. Justin Chichenko made the comments while defending his daughter Savannah from furious online backlash to a TikTok um, video she posted last month while part of PNG's official delegation to the coronation of King Charles III. Mr Tachenko's response only fuelled the social media firestorm and he stepped down from his role as Foreign Minister in an effort to quieten things down. In Parliament yesterday, Mr Tachenko sought to make a personal explanation for his actions but was interrupted by MP Belden Nama, who strongly objected to him addressing the House. This house is the house of useless people and primitive animals. Why is this stranger being allowed and given parliamentary privileges to ask uh, to make a statement? He made a statement to an international media. He should not be allowed to make a statement today. He should resign in disgrace and get out of this parliament. The Speaker, however, allowed Mr Chichenko to speak as the representative for Moresby South, which prompted a walkout by Mr Nama and a handful of other members. Mr Chichenko went on to say his comments were not referring to all Papua New Guineans, just the social media trolls who were targeting his daughter. They say the most disgusting things and make the most vile threats on social media. Regardless of any office that I represent or position that I might hold, above all else in life, first and foremost, I am a father of my children. And when I saw the vile and disgusting things that were being stated and said about my daughter, I did have a burst of blind fury at these horrible individuals. These disgusting individuals, some in PNG as well as in Australia, the UK and other places, were making sexual threats against my daughter. I speak with every parent in this house and every parent of this nation and seek your understanding of how angry and frustrated I was and still am at these trolls. If anyone in our country thought that this was somehow a blanket statement about our people, that is completely wrong. 
Mr Chichenko went on to say that his comments had been twisted and manipulated and then apologised for the way his words were, quote, misinterpreted. I love this country and all that this country stands for and the hopes that it offers to our people. So to our nation, I say to you that I am sorry for any misunderstanding. Papua New Guinea is my home, it is my heart, and it is the place where one day I will be laid to rest. Now, whether the apology is enough to satisfy his critics, some of who believe he should resign from Parliament altogether, is yet to be seen. There's nothing wrong with the timeline for a security treaty between Australia and Papua New Guinea being pushed back. That's according to a PNG political analyst. Last week, Prime Minister James Marape said the treaty had been delayed because of, quote, certain words that could, quote, encroach sovereignty in our sovereign rights. Earlier this year, both countries were hoping the treaty would be signed this month. Deputy Director of the Australia Pacific Security College, Dr Henry Ivaratur, says the delay is probably due to several other factors as well, including lessons learned from the public outcry to the recently signed Defence Cooperation Agreement with the United States. He spoke to our reporter Liam Fox and says another lesson to bear in mind came in the early 2000s when a program to have Australian Federal Police working on the beat in PNG was effectively terminated by the Supreme Court. It got terminated because... The provision and the immunity provisions caused problems, and the courts found that it was under it was uh, unconstitutional in some sections of that agreement. So I think I think it's it's important to uh, for both sides to make sure the agreement is really clear and potential issues that might disrupt or lead to its you know implementation in the future is addressed beforehand before they complete it. So it's uh, it's more than just a case of PNG time. Well, let's say PNG time is great in this, in this occasion because we want to make Papua New Guinea as a sovereign state. Then we have to remember that it's a sovereign state. Must make sure that the issues that it once resolved are properly resolved, and then they proceed. It's that, that I think it's important. PNG time and good luck time. Could there also be uh, other things at play here? Everyone's talking about this era of strategic competition, the competition between the US and China. Do countries like uh, PNG need to tread delicately when they're, they're handling situations like this for fear of offending one side or the other? Yes, that, that's an important consideration. Um, the current geopolitical you know, environment, that competition that's happening in this part of the region would worry governments, Pacific governments, that they might be positioned on one side in a competition with others, other powers. And, and that's important. And it's not just government, but the population in those countries as well, that people would have those concerns. So government has to really uh, thread these kind of agreements very carefully, making sure that they have properly educated their people or their people are aware of the issues. It's likely that uh, the PNG government learned a lesson about public consultation with the uh, US agreement, given the outcry that there was surrounding that. We saw protests at uh, the university, lots of uh, uh, negative comments in social media. 
so they you think would be more inclined to take it a bit slower and bring the public along with them on this one yes i i think i think the us the agreement the the experience that Papua New Guinea experienced in the signing of the us uh, uh, signing of agreements in the united states is, is a good lesson and and it's important to them and i think they are doing everything possible i have seen uh defense the defense force undertake consultations. I have heard calls for from senior Papua New Guineans, citizens, uh, to ask the government of Papua New Guinea to properly explain the agreements it's signing, the issues they're concerned with. I mean, you don't want to sign agreements that uh, will force disruptions to, you know, political disruptions. And so I think they have really learned uh, learned a lot from that experience. And I think they will probably, probably uh, do that as well when they work on this uh, treaty with Australia. Could uh, bureaucratic capacity also be an issue here? I mean, obviously, the, the bureaucrats at the Foreign Affairs uh, have had their hands full. They've had negotiations and working on the US deals. They've had to organise the, the, the visits of uh, Anthony Blinken, US Secretary of State, Narendra Modi. They must have their hands full. They certainly have their hands full, and you know what Papua New Guinea is like. Uh, the capacity is very, very limited. So in a, in a, in a case like a treaty, and, and certain provisions of the treaty require legislation, they have to then uh, work on those legislation. It has to go through a process, and whether they have the capacity to you know, work on that legislation, that's, a, that's another issue. And then they have to go through the process of getting all the consultations done around the legislation. It has to go to cabinet. And it has to go to Parliament, uh, and and so it will take time. And often you find in many countries in the Pacific, the capacity is lacking to do all of these things. And you know they have other issues at hand as well, not just uh, you know working on treaties and organizing international visitors arriving at, on their in their country. So a lot of other work that is demanding on them. They're really stretched. Let's say. Is there a risk here that Australia could push too hard? Australia seems to be very eager to get these kind of deals done in light of, you know, China's increasing influence and presence over the years. That appears to be the motivation here. It's it's uh, struck a deal, similar deal with Vanuatu. The defence minister was there yesterday. Australia is clearly eager to get these do- things done as quickly as possible. Is there a risk that it, it could push PNG too hard and too fast? Uh, I think Australia is very well aware of the sensitivities and and potential risks, so I think I think uh, Australia, if it if it pushes, there could be some resistance, but I think they are well aware that they should uh, work with their PNG colleagues uh, and 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 work on their timetable. I mean, it's better to just be be, be careful, be slow, be meticulous, be methodical, and 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 come up with an outcome that is. Uh, on both sides, you know, a good outcome. That was Dr. Henry Ivaraturé, Deputy Director of the Australia Pacific Security College, speaking there to Liam Fox. 
A conference bringing together 300 gender equality advocates from the region has wrapped up here in NAR, Melbourne. The conference is in preparation for an upcoming global meeting in Kigali, Rwanda, where Pacific women's leaders will highlight some of their work fighting gender discrimination in their homes and communities. Fiji's former Minister for Women, Merisani Rakuita, who now heads Pacific Women and Girls for the SPC, says the unique challenges facing Pacific women are reflected in outcomes in the outcomes document drafted this week. The outcomes document that has come out of the Pacific, for example, if you look at um, gender-based violence and what they spoke about, they identifying the Pacific as the one region in the, in the world that has the highest number of prevalence rates for gender-based violence is very high. While the global average is one out of three women having suffered some sort of violence in their lifetime, for us in the Pacific, it's two out of three women. So what does that mean in practical terms? What solutions can we look at um, as an oceanic region that we can take to Kigali? And what can we learn from Kigali? Uh, the international uh, stakeholders that will be represented there, what have they done in their countries that we can replicate in our own region? So it's um, a solidarity movement-making uh, platform, but also very importantly, it's peer learning the way I see it. The ability to really listen to uh, countries that have done great things in this space and the ability to learn from them and make those critical connections uh, through the Women Deliver Conference. Um, while you were minister, you championed gender mainstreaming in government. What is that and what impact did it have on the ground in Fiji? Gender mainstreaming is basically the, it's, it's an approach to policy making that takes into account both women and men's interests and concerns. But because um, our, our governance structures were made by men, basically for men, a lot of our policies and programs don't really reflect the lived realities, the concerns, interests, and rights of women. So gender mainstreaming, um, when we carried it out, uh, started it off in Fiji, we started with nine pilot ministries. It's basically going into those ministries, bringing in the core capacities on gender to look at their policies and programs and laws that revolve around the sectoral work that they do to ensure that it is um, uh, it, it equally represents the interests of both men and women. And what we found um, instantly is that there was a, a need, an opportunity to build the capacity of uh, ministries within within the Fijian government to bring them up to par with, uh, with um, for example, learning to do agenda analysis, looking at a policy and to analyze the impact of that policy on both men and women, to find the gaps, and there were gaps, and to be able to f- design programs to address those gaps. We did an analysis across the government. There was actually an increase across of the empowered ministries that were now considering gender-sensitive programs within their own ministries. And and that really is what mainstreaming looks like. And where to from here? What 
I hope to see going forward is more cohesion in the way we carry out our gender equality efforts to really bring in these pieces of work that have been ongoing over the years and put meaning through a coordinated effort across the region. That was Fiji's former Minister for Women, Merisani Rakuita, speaking there to reporter Dubrovka Volodair. Producer Kyle Evans joins me here in the studio to go through the stories making news this morning. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Talia. Now, Kyle, let's start in Micronesia, where there's a new agreement to build a $95 million undersea cable. That's right. So uh, Japan announced this week that it's joined Australia and the US on signing an agreement to connect and improve networks in East Micronesia. So this is, was uh, widely reported yesterday and reports say it will be a 2,200 kilometre cable that will connect FSM, Kiribati and Nauru to the existing cable landing spot located in Pompeii in Micronesia. And once finished, it will provide better and more secure internet and communication lines between those countries and it will also connect more than 100,000 people. And the reason I understand is to counter efforts by China, which is expanding its own influence in those regions. And that seems like something I've said a lot in the past uh, few weeks. It feels like that's a common reason why things are getting done. But, you know, when it comes to these undersea cables, they are really important when it comes to communication and technology. We've seen multiple times what happens when these undersea cables go down. So having more of them is not a bad idea. Um, Is there a timeline on when we can expect this cable will be built. Yeah, so 2025, according to to reports, uh, the next steps involve a final survey and the manufacturing of the cable itself, uh, which is no thicker than a garden hose, from what I understand. So hopefully no uh, no anchors from boats can... uh, can sever that. <laughs> I remember when I was um, reporting on the Tongan volcano eruption and, you know, the because of the eruption and the consequent tsunami there underwater sea cable, that's why communication was lost mm. for as long as it was. And the repair job was literally that. It was a garden hose that was ridiculously long that they mm. had to go repair little bits that some, you know, got buried under the sand with it. Mm. It's a lot of work and there are only so many ships that can come and do this repair work as well. So um, it is obviously very, very important, but <laughs> there's a lot of skill that goes into fixing them as well. Um, now, we were speaking there of Japan and they've become, begun their process of releasing Alps-treated water from the Fukushima power plant back into the ocean. Obviously, just in the steps, they haven't actually hit the button yet, have they? No, that's right. So uh, the process has begun. It started. They've started sending seawater into an underwater tunnel, uh, which has been purposefully built to funnel uh, that that treated, formerly contaminated water to its discharge location. So this was reported by the the country's national broadcaster NHA, and uh, they say the tunnel has been filled with about six thousand tonnes of water, uh, which will guide that contaminated wastewater from the plant to a point about a kilometre offshore. From there, I understand it will be stored in a reservoir before finally being released uh, into the ocean. And I know that Japan has gone to, um, you know, significant efforts to emphasise that they believe that that um, treated contaminated water is safe using that ALPS system. Um, So when do they say it's expected to happen? Yeah, so they hope 
They say it will happen once construction work is completed uh, on that reservoir, uh, which they say will be sometime, uh, I believe, towards the end of next uh, the end of next month. Interesting, lower court. Interestingly, though, according to the report, that process which I just spoke of of releasing that seawater into the tunnel that actually happened on Monday and was conducted without any uh, preliminary announcement taking mm-hmm. place. So, sort of that tells me they <laughs> might be trying to draw attention away from this uh, somewhat. Well, I think that there's a lot of attention, and you know. Mm. One of the things that they have continually, the concerns that have been made is around transparency and being clear and ensuring that, you know, this um, discharge is going to last for four decades and, you know, making sure that it is safe. So (laughs) secrecy is probably not (laughs) a good thing. Um, Let's go to sport now where the OFC Women's Champion League tournament continues today. What's on the fixture? That's right. So two games today as we draw to the uh, the pointy end of uh, of the inaugural tournament and uh, New Caledonia's AS Academy Feminine. They'll play Samoa's Kiwi FC at noon PNG time and that'll be followed by Kalale FC and Hakati United. Now, Academy Feminine, uh, they look to be in pole position so far to claim uh, that trophy having gone undefeated so far. However, a win for... For Kalale today over Hakati would set up a, a virtual winner-takes-all match against Academy Feminine uh, on Saturday. And Academy Feminine, of course, you know, New Caledonia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Feels like a, a win is always a good thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously um, Samoa, Fiji, have had some sporting wins <laughs> of the past. Um, so it's good to share it around. Absolutely. Um, and finally, an Australian rugby player has announced he wants to play for Samoa at the World Cup. That's right. So Christian Liliofano uh, has revealed he is close to finalising the paperwork that would allow him to formally transfer his allegiance from Australia to Samoa. So this is reported by the AAP. Uh, look, highly accomplished accomplished player, 26 Wallaby appearances under his belt, uh, years in the Super Rugby. Uh, Cantor survivor as well. He actually came back uh, from leukaemia, which mm. he suffered, uh, suffered about 10 years ago while playing for the ACT Brumbies. Um, he is 36, however, so he's, he's best days might be behind him. Excuse but, um, me, I'm 36. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. sure he still has a lot of potential. <laughs> but, uh, but no, look, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic he still has uh, something left in the tank, if if that is uh, indeed selected to uh, uh, select to select him for the side. Indeed. And he has, of course, been playing for Moana Pacifica, so mm. he's definitely still match fit. So. Led them to a win as yeah, well, actually. Ex- exactly. So we wish, we wish him the best. Kyle, thanks so much for bringing us those stories. Thank you, Talia. That was Kyle Evans there with stories making news around the region today. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. I don't think it was wrong that he said that he didn't want to come to the Dragons. Truth is, players have preferences. As a player, if I was asked, you know, the five Super W clubs here in Australia where I want to go, I know what my first preference is and I also know what my last preference is. Which is it? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not about to be on rugby.com tomorrow. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific? Thursdays from 6 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're listening to Pacific Beat with me, Talia Olatia. Tolna is set to become the first Pacific country to experiment with wave technology when work commences on a new power wave park later this year. If all goes to plan, it could half Tonga's energy needs and bring down crippling cost of living pressures. But there are challenges to getting the cutting edge technology up and running. This is Kyle Evans's story. People across the world are feeling the pinch of rising power prices. But in Tonga, it's particularly bad. I think it's way too high. Very high in comparison with current salary ranges here in Tonga at the moment. 
Mapatamalolo is a Tongan resident and also used to help manage infrastructure and energy programs while at the Australian High Commission. He says the extreme power costs are pushing people to take steps to control their usage. And we can see the ripple effects of the hikes and the electricity prices. We have witnessed this in, since the hikes and the electricity bills last year. I'm sure you're aware of the mass complaints from customers um, in mid last year. And there is a, a huge impact on the cost of living here in Tonga. And though some families are turning to solar panels to help them get through, Mr Tamalolo says electricity prices have only gotten higher. I believe we do not have the right configuration and also the exact setup for the renewable energy system. And from my previous career, I was able to witness that this solar panels and having this run on grid is actually more expensive than running off diesel, which was quite unexpected. Now the Kingdom of Tonga has come up with a new plan. The government has signed a memorandum of understanding with an Irish-based wave energy firm called Seabased. They plan to develop a 10-megawatt wave power park off the coast of Tongatapu. It will capture energy from waves and turn it into electricity. There's a, an operation in WA called Carnegie Wave Energy. They use a similar system to the one that's proposed by Seabased in Tonga. And so that's one I'm actually very familiar with. Ray Wills is the managing director of business advisory firm FutureSmart and chairs a number of green technology companies. A whole range of different ways to collect it. The one in Tonga is the one that is going to be a point source absorber and it, it will move up and down as the wave passes over top. Inside it is just a, a generator that will spin uh, and create electricity. They have a good advantage because they're fairly low disturbance. They sit under the water so they're protected from a rougher ocean. And there's a string of other things. It's very minimal impact environmentally. And in fact, some would argue it can enhance the environment around because it actually provides more places to live. These attenuators can be, uh, uh, can, can be populated, that things can grow on them. And if we can make it work commercially, then it's a very reliable, cheap energy source. The project will be delivered in two phases. The first will be a two megawatt park, which will generate enough power for close to 3,000 homes. Once the entire 10 megawatt project is complete, it's expected to provide half of Tonga's energy and cut emissions by 20%. But Professor Will says the technology is far from perfect. It's largely to do with the fact that uh, living in the ocean is a fairly harsh environment for a piece of metal. And so you've got to be able to anchor it, you've got to be able to protect it from corrosion, you've got to be able to ensure that it's going to survive big storms as they come through. Uh, and all of those things, if they don't do those things, then then you've got to repair and maintain. And so, therefore, it adds cost to the generation. All that cost belongs in the project. And the project then needs to, to make money to stay profitable to keep working. So that's, that's really the, the challenge. And really coming up with what is the ideal design, the one that actually is, is best performing, is going to be the cheapest. Ray says the biggest challenge is ensuring the project remains efficient early on. The maintenance is, shouldn't be all that complicated. Our local population in Tonga should be able to be trained up easily to be the service agents for the project. That's only particularly useful if the project is large enough. If it's too small and it's a part-time job, it might not be something that keeps the skill set in place because you may go to another job. 
Whereas if there's, you know, if there's if it's a sizable project that therefore needs a bit of manpower, then you will be able to actually maintain a stable workforce around it. Uh, that's this is the usual problems of commerciality is the problems of ensuring you've got sufficient scale to actually make it worth doing the exercise. But Mr Tamalolo is optimistic. He believes the renewable sector provides a great opportunity to keep people in Tonga. Especially that we have been having lots of social problems in relation to the labour mobility scheme and also the seasonal uh, working scheme in New Zealand and Australia. But having this opportunity here in Tonga will generate more jobs and I think the people will, uh, will be interested in pursuing a career in this field. Tonga is the first Pacific nation to experiment with wave technology, but it's still a new industry with very little evidence that the technology can provide power on a large scale. Nevertheless, Ray says if they are successful, Tonga could become a pioneer for other Pacific nations. The advantage and the disadvantage at the same time that Tonga has is the energy in Tonga is pretty expensive. Uh, So anything that reduces that energy cost, especially that eliminates the use of oil and diesel, uh, is is an advantage. Um, You move from importing stuff from overseas, which affects your balance of trade, to making use of your own energy locally, so there's already merit in that if you can actually make it, even if even if it's dollar for dollar the same, there would be merit in it. Um, but if we can make it cheaper, there's a lot more merit. And so um, because Tonga does rely a lot on um, oil and diesel, uh, by eliminating that, you're not only saving on your balance of trade, but you're reducing a costly fuel source uh, to make use of a local fuel source. So that's a win-win. Tonga plans to have the entire wave technology project completed by 2025. That was Kyle Evans there with that report, and Pacific Beat has reached out to the Dongan government, but we are yet to receive a response. In some news just in being reported by Reuters, the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, observatory rather, has reported that the Kilauea volcano on Hawaii's Big Island has erupted early on Wednesday morning Hawaii time, so that's this morning, and lava flows are currently confined to the surrounding crater floor. US Geological Survey says it's elevating Kilauea's aviation colour code from orange to red as it evaluates the eruption. Located in a closed area of Hawaii's Volcanoes National Park. Kilauea is one of the world's most active volcanoes. In 2019, a string of earthquakes and major eruptions at Kilauea led to the destruction of hundreds of homes and businesses. And we'll be sure to keep you updated with that story as it continues on through the day. Let's move to underwater now because corals get stressed just like the rest of us and that makes them more prone to disease, scientists have said in a study published in the journal Ecology Letters. According to the new research, warming temperatures will see nearly 80% of coral coral in reefs diseased in the next 80 years and the Pacific Ocean will be the worst affected. Samantha Burke from the University of New South Wales is the lead author of the study and Dubrovka Volodair asked her, what coral disease is and how it differs from coral bleaching. Coral disease is uh, sort of different than what you would imagine with coral bleaching, but it can look quite similar. So coral disease is characterized by changes in tissue color. Um, It can also be tissue loss or um, uh, tissue discoloration as well. While we don't currently know 
what the exact pathogen is for many of these diseases, we are able to characterize coral diseases based on their visual appearance on the reef. We talk about coral disease and you've explained how it differs from coral bleaching. When I would look at it and I would look at bleached corals, I would see it, they would lose their color. Is that the same with coral disease and do we know if there are any stressors that make certain corals more prone to these diseases? Yeah, so the difference between coral bleaching and coral disease visually um, can be quite difficult to determine if you if you don't know what to look for. So with coral bleaching, oftentimes it's just the tissue has uh, lost its color, um, but coral disease can actually be a a loss of the tissue itself. So not just the, a change in color, but also uh, you can see that the tissue is separated from the like skeletal structure of the coral itself. You asked about the stressors that can affect coral disease. There are quite a few that have been found to correlate with higher levels of coral disease. Um, the big one that we've studied being ocean temperatures, um, but there are a variety of other factors that have been found to correlate as well, like acidification, human damage, and also uh, a storm presence, so physical damage from storms. So corals get stressed like the rest of us? Absolutely, yes. In your research, you found that 80% of corals will be diseased in the next 80 years due to warming um, temperatures. How did you come to that conclusion? So the way that uh, our research works is we take all of the surveys of coral disease worldwide that have been published, and these researchers will go out onto a reef and visually assess a particular area and uh, measure something called disease prevalence, which is a community-level assessment of how much of the corals within that area are exhibiting signs of disease. We then collect their research, those surveys, and we uh, put them all together into a model which will allow us to use that ex observed data to predict what will happen in future years. So uh, this model was able to incorporate over 900 data points together to uh, sort of build a, a trend of what we can predict for coral disease prevalence in future years. And I believe that there are certain oceans that are more at risk. While the main finding of our, uh, of our model was not specific to any one region, uh, if we look within different regions, we can see there are slight differences between the rate at which it will get worse. Uh, and so when we look specifically at the three different oceans, which is the Atlantic, Pacific, and the Indian Ocean, we found that the Pacific was uh, accelerating at a little bit of a uh, faster rate um, if we look at increases in temperature. There are many different factors that can affect this, so it's hard to say that whether there is one particular reason why this is getting worse. Um, we hypothesize it could be due to the type of corals that are within Pacific reefs. So uh, certain species of coral are more heat sensitive than others. Um, and so that could be a contributing reason as to why the Pacific may be doing a bit worse than the other recorded reefs. 
And with this disease, what sort of impact um, will that have on reefs in the Pacific in particular and on communities? As coral disease is predicted to increase, uh, coral disease is really uh, highly correlated with coral mortality. So uh, eventually these corals will die. And these corals are so important not uh, to the ecosystem where they've built up over hundreds and hundreds of years. They're very slow growing and they've built this entire habitat that support so much of marine life. They can host about a quarter of all of the uh, marine biodiversity. So all of the different species that live within the ocean often call coral reefs as their, their home habitat. And so if these corals continue to uh, become diseased, they'll continue to die. That sort of breaks down that entire habitat. And this can have devastating effects for human population. And as the reefs continue to die, we may see a breakdown of that entire food chain from the bottom up. So losing those uh, key food items that uh, we require for those uh, island nations that have relied so heavily on fishing industries. There's also uh, a big impact onto the economy as a whole. What's a way out? It's, it's about the choices that we make in terms of lowering our carbon footprints and reducing uh, our impact and contributing to climate change as a whole. We don't know specifically whether ocean temperatures is the only driver of coral disease, but we do know it is having an effect. And so if we can reduce... If we can reduce that effect and mitigate for uh, these changes in climate, then we could start to make a difference in lowering coral disease and uh, conserving our very important coral reefs. That was PhD candidate Samantha Burke from the University of New South Wales talking there to Dubrovka Volodair. Now, to mark World Oceans Day, the World Bank has released a report highlighting some of the dangers we take trying to cross Pacific waters and what can be done to solve them. It's found that patchy services, unreliable boats and a lack of oversight can often mean many people put their lives at risk trying to journey between islands. But there is hope for improvement. And to take us through it, we're joined by the World Bank's Senior Infrastructure Specialist, Sean Michaels. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Talia. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me on the program. No, thank you for joining us and getting up early. <laughs> it's always a little bit of a, it's always a bit of an ask. Yeah. Now, Sean, <laughs> let's start with one of the biggest maritime disasters from the region. Um, we're talking back in 2018 in Kiribati, where more than 90 people died after boarding a, a, an unfit um, ferry for passenger use, and many of them were school students. Um, how much has changed in regards to maritime um, safety in the Pacific since that event? Well, look, that disaster was was absolutely horrific. And, um, you know, it, unfortunately, it wasn't, wasn't the last one. Um, you're, you're probably aware there was also um, a disaster uh, in 2020 in the Solomon Islands where 27 people um, were washed overboard. So there, there, ha there has been situation like that. Um, there's been, you know, a number of other safety incidents um, since then, and and there's a lack of data um, out there just to really grasp the problem. But 
the the good thing is is that it's on countries' radars, right? Um, we're engaged in the sector. We've seen governments take this uh, incredibly seriously. Um, there are a number of countries that are taking measures to improve it. Um, some of the measures will will take some time, but but some are already underway. Whether countries are investing in um, infrastructure or safety gear or um, you know, to strengthen the regulations, enforcement and oversight. But but there are still gaps and these gaps need to be addressed. Because mm, I remember um, when I was reporting on that Kiribati tragedy, that part of the issues with the ferry was that, you know, um, in open seas, it wasn't designed to have passengers on it. And even the simple thing of communication they um, of when they set off um, to where they were going, they hadn't let anyone know. So it took a while to realise that there was even an issue. So there is a, a range of different things. It's not just obviously the safety of the vessel itself, but the surrounding things with communication that also, um, you know, uh, lead to making things safer. Oh, you're totally right. You know, I mean, it, it's it's a whole myriad of, of things, right? So, you know, there's there's cases where, you know, the weather, um, you'd have a severe weather event and vessels go out and they have no business being out there in severe weather events. Or, you know, we've seen cases where the vessels are, are totally, they have too many people, too much cargo, they're, they're overloaded. Um, comms equipment, as you noted, is either not used appropriately or it may you know, sometimes not be sufficient. Um, and so there are these, these are some of the issues that are in place. And it all comes back to this point of there's a need, a great need for a greater safety culture um, in the Pacific when it comes to the maritime transport sector. And, you know, regulations need to be strengthened in enforcement as well, right? That's, that's really key in this, uh, in, in, in the whole um, set of solutions that need to mm. need to be taken. Yeah, absolutely. Because when a tragedy happens, obviously there are calls for investigations. Those investigations come yep. out. There's a report. Those report offers findings in the aim of improving um, safety conditions and trying to avoid um, disasters from happening again. Um, why do you think sometimes that these findings are not implemented? Like, what are the challenges that the Pacific face when it comes to taking that next, you know, step? Sometimes. Well, look, it, it depends. Sometimes, you know, it's it, it could be a capacity challenge. Um, you know, it, it, it could be an issue of, you know, a judiciary system, you know, maybe and unfortunately the 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 enforcement, the, the penalties are not strong enough. Um oversight and monitoring um at the ports before before the ships go out to sea is not strong enough. Um, you know, some of the private vessel carriers, you know, you have to make sure that they're they're heeding the warnings. Um, so all of this is tied, you know, strengthening audits, you know, of, of vessel conditions, things like that. Um, all of that can can partly create, um, you know, is, is contributing to, to some of the persistent problems and challenges. Mm -hmm. But like I said, you know, we're very hopeful it's getting it's it's getting better. Um, but but certainly a lot more needs to be done. 
Indeed. You're listening to World Bank's Senior Infrastructure Specialist, Sean Michaels, talking to me on World Oceans Day about Pacific maritime safety. Now, Sean, sometimes these um, improvements can be costly and, you know, some companies can then pass those costs on through ticket prices to passengers. Um, You know, cost, of course, is a huge barrier into getting things fixed and, you know, sometimes you just need to get to that other island. Um, You know, what can be done in terms of making it, I guess, beneficial for companies that they, you know, make those upgrades, make those improvements if they need to do. And then also for passengers that, you know, they're not the ones who I know that their safety is important, but they're not the ones solely wearing the financial costs. Yeah, look, it's it's a great question and it's and it and isn't there isn't an easy solution, but I think there's a couple a couple things that can be done. Um, you know, one thing is on the upfront planning of of the ship that's going to be purchased, you know, or or the assets that are going to be purchased, and and making sure that it's suitable. Um, you know, uh, sometimes there may be a tendency to try to buy bigger, um, but bigger is not always better, right? Um, you know, getting something that's that's suitable for the sea. Um, and investing more in the maintenance is is really important. And when you invest in maintenance, it's better than, you know, buying something, falling apart, and then having to buy something, buy something again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, there's things like policy interventions. You know, countries may want to look into subsidy support, for example, um, to help ensure that prices don't get passed on, you know, increases in prices don't get passed on to um, to the, the the passengers, for example. So there's there's a couple of things, but you know that that can be taken. Um, but I'd really center around when it comes to that and the affordability angle is is both um, you know looking at a combination of policy interventions and then the planning of the of the the you know what what the um, vessel is going to be used. Mm, Indeed. And obviously when it comes to policy, we're talking about governments. Um, So what would you like to see um, governments do in this space? Does it need to be prioritised more or, um, you know, uh, what, what can be done? Look, we, we see, um, you know, and, 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 and the report just doesn't only focus on safety, but it is a huge, huge part of it. Um, But, I think there's a there's five um, key key things that we'd like to see um, you know uh, actions that countries can take. Um, one is investing in maritime infrastructure um, for life. So what does that mean? It means a whole of life approach to building um, and maintaining infrastructure and vessels. Mm-hmm. You know, in particular, greater emphasis needs to be placed on improving maintenance processes, which, mm-hmm. as, as I mentioned, are, are often um, underfunded. Mm, indeed. Um, the oh, second. Oh, I'll just yeah, get you to, I, the, the five are important, but we're running close to the clock. So if we can get the other four in the next minute, that yeah. would be great. <laughs> no worries. We need to improve um, planning to future-proof critical infrastructure like ports, right? So, so safety is also closely tied to the Pacific's vulnerability to natural disasters and climate change. So ensuring that you know the infrastructure and and the vessels are are able to be resilient and and handle that. That's important. Um, uh, improving safety through leadership, commitment, and investment. Uh, enhancing governance um, 
is is incredibly important um, and enforcement um, and enhancing the maritime services to better connect communities by providing more reliable and affordable domestic shipping services, mm -hmm. particularly to those living in the remote outer islands that may be most vulnerable, particularly when it comes to safety concerns. Mm, indeed, they are all very important and I appreciate you um, getting through them so we can let our listeners know. Sean Michaels, thank you so much for joining Pacific Beat this morning. Thank you so much, Talia. Thank you. That was World Bank's Senior Infrastructure Specialist, Sean Michaels, talking to me there on this World Oceans Day, June 8. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for this morning. Jacob McGuire will be up next after the news with Nisha Daily. And then at 3pm PNG time, Richard Hewitt will bring you all the news and views from around the region for the afternoon edition of Pacific Beat. Richard will also be in the chair tomorrow morning. I'm Talia Olatia, Fafatai Lefa Alongolongu, Tofa Soifua.